This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 36, recorded on January 17th, 2014. This is the first episode of the new year. Hope everybody had a happy new year. I'm your host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with the Ohio State University. And today I'm not here with any co-host. First time in a while. Everyone's dumped me today. But we can wing it on our own. So we still have an exciting episode for you. Today I have a guest with us, Dr. Kathleen Neville. Doctor, welcome, Dr. Neville. Thanks for Thank being you. here. Thank you. So Dr. Neville is currently the director of the Experimental Therapeutics Program, uh, Therapeutics in Pediatric Cancer Program at Children's Mercy Hospital. She's an associate professor of pediatrics in the divisions of pediatric clinical pharmacology and medical toxicology and hematology oncology there at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. So quite quite a, a, a lot of jobs, it sounds like. She also serves as chair of the Education Committee of the American Society of Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics. She's a consultant on the FDA Pediatric Advisory Committee. She serves on the FDA Pediatric Oncology Subcommittee of the Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee and uh, has a number of other uh, assigned duties uh, nationally. So uh, it's great to have you here to talk about drug development in pediatric cancer. Thank you. To, for starters, why don't we kind of go back in history a little bit, as our audience that listens to us know that I like to do, uh, and talk about uh, how you got into this field and where you train and all that sort of thing. Okay. Um, so I was born and raised in New York. And went to college in Rochester and then always thought I wanted to be in medicine and then took some time off and actually worked on Wall Street for a couple of years, but was sort of raised to, you need to contribute. That was after college? After college, before medical school. And when stockbrokers celebrated the blow up of a South African mine because they had shorts on the stock. I couldn't stomach it. So I actually worked and studied for the MCATs at the same time and then went back to medical school and loved children but wanted some more intense medicine. And I think pediatric oncology picked me. I had a patient in residency who touched my heart and after that I just was sold and then I did fellowship at Texas Children's so residency was at Brown fellowship was at Texas Children's and I went into the lab of Dr. Susan Blaney who does a lot of early drug development in pediatric cancer and I sort of fell into clinical pharmacology I loved looking at how the body handles drugs and drug development and got recruited to Indiana University as faculty in Hemonc, but was allowed to do some extra training in ClinPharm and pharmacogenetics with a very well-known adult researcher, Dr. David Flockhart, and then got recruited to Kansas City, and here I am. How long have you been in Kansas City? Eight years. And did they have any drug development going on there, or were you charged with setting all that up? So 
We do a lot of collaboration with University of Kansas, and they have quite a bit of drug development in adult medicine. I was charged with building an early phase program in cancer and bringing, collaborating with them to bring some of their drug development and basic science expertise into the pediatric arena. And so what have you built there? Or how many people you have there? What, what kind of situation? What, so what's interesting about how we set up the program there is I'm boarded in both ClinFarm and Pediatric Hemonc, but my program is embedded in clinical pharmacology, and I did that very purposefully because of the expertise needed in clinical trials. I have another physician with me, a nurse practitioner, three dedicated coordinators, and an administrative assistant, plus all of the administrative resources of the hospital. We do a lot of our own administrative work for studies. We also wanted to be embedded in clinical pharmacology because of the translational and science that's going on there in that arena. So the hospital is largely clinical, but clinical pharmacology has a lot of basic and translational pharmacokinetics and pharmacogenetics going on. So those are a lot of big words. Some of our audience <laughs> may not follow you, but uh, so could you just briefly say, you know, what is pharmacokinetics, what is pharmacogenetics, and why is it I important? I sure can. <laughs> so pharmacokinetics is basically how what your body does to a drug. So when you hear people talking about drug levels in patients or subjects over time and how that's mathematically modeled to figure out drug exposure, that's pharmacokinetics. Pharmacodynamics is what the drug does to your body. So when you t hear people talk about dose response and the proper dose for a drug to be given, that's all based on pharmacodynamics. Pharmacogenetics is the science of how do differences in our DNA affect affect both what drugs do to our body and what our body does to drugs. So I think those are very important concepts to understand because I think for our listening audience, it's the whole field of drug discovery has been near and dear to their hearts. We've had a number of people on that run foundations that are trying to raise money that and and the topic, the idea that, you know, most drugs are developed for adults and we're sort of left to see what kind of trickles down to us in pediatrics. Um, has been a frustration. So first of all, thank you for being in this field and, <laughs> and doing all this work on behalf of kids with cancer. What challenges have you, this is a big question, I guess, what challenges have you encountered in, in trying to do this work for kids with cancer? I think a lot is what you're saying. And I've gotten a good view with the stuff I'm doing with the American Academy of Pediatrics that cancer is in children is very public and well-known, but the issues in drug development affect other children with rare diseases. So metabolic diseases, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, all are small diseases in terms of population numbers. And I think because kids don't vote, they're not lucrative diseases, drug development in children is much slower than it should be. So the, there have been some efforts at the national level to encourage drug companies to engage in pediatric drug development. You just gave a talk here and talked some about that. Could you sort of walk our listeners through the FD Asia and BPCA <laughs> and PREA and all that sort of thing? I sure can. And I think the FDA is to be commended. 
What I didn't talk about in the lecture was there was a lot of controversy at the time when these laws were passed, and when they were initially passed, it was sort of a trial run, and so every five years they had to be renewed, so every five years the whole pediatric community would have to get together and lobby Congress to not take these drugs, these laws away. And so what they've done is both given incentives and requirements to industry under particular circumstances for drugs to be studied in children. BPCA stands for Best Pharmaceuticals for Children Act, and the way I think about that is it's the carrot. That's the law that gives companies six months extra of exclusivity if they do a negotiated with the FDA study in children, an appropriate study. It's been good incentive for companies. And actually, at the time it, it was passed, it was quite controversial because there were people who were saying this isn't enough, and there were people on the other side saying that's way too much money for industry. And actually, if you ask the overwhelming majority of stakeholders, it's worked quite well. Then there's PREA, which is the Pediatric Research Equity Act that requires companies to study a given medication in children if there's an indication. The problem or the hole that's left with that legislation is that often an indication of a drug that's used in adults does not exist in children. So, for example, a coagulation drug, my anticoagulation drug, may be used as an anticoagulant for AFib. Well, in children, we use it for long-standing catheters or hypercoagulable states that are very different than that which occurs in adults. And so the company's not required to study the drug in children. And we see that, as you know very well, in cancer because it's a different disease. A company can have a windfall of a drug in breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer. Well, kids don't get colon cancer, but the drugs often may have overlapping activity in pediatric tumors, yet they're not required to be studied. So it, it, the intention of it was somewhat reasonable, but in practice, it's not much of a stick. Orphan diseases are still not covered. It actually is quite a stick, as the FDA now publishes on their website companies that aren't in compliance. So for the overwhelming, more common diseases in children, it is a stick. So if you're unfortunate enough to have asthma, you'll luck out because asthma occurs in adults. For the less common pediatric-only diseases, it's still a sticking point. And in my opinion, it's not because of implementation of the FDA because over the past 10 years, there's been quite a bit of improvement in pediatric expertise. It's more because of the legislation. And there is talk within the field and community of why can't we move to mechanistic-based testing in drugs. For example, in pediatrics, a given tumor pathway may exist in both pediatric cancer and adult cancer. So if a company knows that that is the pathway that's inhibited by a drug, though, then they maybe should be required to study that drug in children. It's a long way away, but it may be coming. Right. What, how does all this relate to the pediatric development plan or pediatric investigational plan that is required, and can you contrast what, what's required in the United States with what's required elsewhere? So the pediatric plan that's required, again, is part of PREA, so part of the stick, and 
in the United States, it's required after phase two. So after efficacy studies are done in adults and the company or investigator knows that the drug works, before they go for a new drug application, they have to have a plan or for drugs where it's not appropriate, get a waiver from the FDA. The EMA requires these studies at the end of phase one or toxicity studies in adults. So, so the EMA being the Europeans or yes, the, uh, the FDA, UK and yeah. the Europe and the FDA, the United States. So they're not very well harmonized. Both agencies are looking to become more harmonized because research is international, but it presents a, a in my opinion, a, a problem for pharma because mo in rare diseases, to get sufficient numbers of subjects to figure out if something is effective or uh, an acceptable toxicity profile. Companies are having to do international studies, and it's a problem or issue in the U.S. because by the time they come to present trials to those of us in the U.S., the trial design and constraints have already been dictated because they have had to present to the European agencies. So is it, am I right in thinking that in, in Europe they need one of these pediatric plans for anything they're going to try to get licensed for? Or is it still like PREA, only those where there's both an adult and a pediatric shared disease? It's similar to the United States, but how they view the, the details are a little different. So how they decide what should be waived or not waived is a little bit different. And in fact, sometimes the endpoints of what for a given study of what EMA thinks are appropriate and what FDA thinks are appropriate are very different, and even standards of care. But yes, companies can get waivers there as well. Not an easy... <laughs> <laughs> Not for the faint of heart. <laughs> yeah. One of the things you talked about in your talk uh, that might bypass some of the hurdles that are needed in drug development is the whole idea of repurposing of drugs. Could you explain what that is, and are there any examples in in our field? Well, and some old examples of repurposing, one that I touched on in the lecture is lithium. So lithium was originally developed to be a salt substitute and was marketed and then people started dropping dead and it was pulled from the market and then repurposed and as you know is a very widely used drug for bipolar disorder. Is the doses different or why the, aren't people uh, The doses are different okay. and <laughs> people aren't sprinkling it all over their food. I see. And same with trazodone which is a sleep agent now. That was originally marketed as an antidepressant but they found that the doses needed to have an antidepressant effect made people overly sleepy. So now it's marketed as a sleep aid. Repurposing in our field, there are a lot of old drugs that were used for a given disorder. For example, some of the metal compounds. We're working with the guys at KU, and they have found some really promising old agents that were either antifungals or autoimmune rheumatoid arthritis agents that are being repurposed to look at anti-cancer activity. And some of it has to do with formation of reactive oxygen species. Some of the mechanisms aren't entirely known, but they're in early phase studies, and at least in vitro, they've shown activity against some of the adult cancers. I think with the high throughput screening capability that now exists, it's a burgeoning field. I do think as a, as a discipline, 
we need to be very intentional in how we do animal model testing and what goes forward from that. Well, that brings up one of the issues that I've been thinking about when I've gone to some of the national meetings recently and watched, you know, cell line after cell line be tested or drug massive drug screenings be tested on cell lines. And we're really coming to a bigger understanding of cancer these days with the microenvironment and immune cells and stromal cells and endothelial exosomes, cells and yeah. exosomes. There's so much more to it than just the tumor cell that you're going to miss when you just do these ex in vitro uh, screenings. You guys thought about that at all and are there any and you have one of the experts here actually dr houghton and i had quite a nice discussion about that it's an issue in the field so for osteosarcoma there's a great model in the spontaneous dog osteosarcoma for so for some of the work we're doing with that our hope is then to go if we find promising agents to go into clinical trials in dogs and we have a collaboration with the veterinary group in colorado For other diseases, it's more problematic. So I think if you show activity, everyone, my understanding is if there's no activity in the mouse model, forget it. It's not worth your time. But the problem is when there is activity or only a little activity, then continuing to bring a drug forward I think is problematic. And in kids... There's Partly because mice tolerate drugs in general exactly, much better yeah. than people. And we don't inject drugs IP right. in people. And there, with the new molecular entities, I think there's a whole can of worms that we're not fully knowledgeable about yet because how do these pathways affect growth? So, for example, bevacizumab and bone deposition, great, we're getting growth plate x-rays in the early phase studies, but the drug hasn't been around long enough with long-term survivors to know are we affecting growth? And there's some key differences, I think, in pediatrics as new agents come along that we need to be cognizant of that we may not have answers to and may carry inherent long-term risk with them. I guess the best we can do is be cognizant of that and continue to try to incorporate longer-term studies. I agree. And if we could cure neuroblastoma without making someone deaf, that would be an accomplishment. Well, that's certainly the hope with targeted therapy, right? That right. We're not hitting people with a sledgehammer as much. Of course, the problem with targeted therapy is you can the cancer can move the target. Uh, any ideas about how we're going to deal <laughs> with I that? And I think we're just in the infancy of targeted therapy, and you and I both know cases where we've been burned by thinking we're inhibiting a pathway, and we are inhibiting that pathway, but actually upregulating another growth pathway and making the tumor worse. So I have no great answers for that except science. And I think we're also in the infancy of molecular-guided treatment. So we're in a consortium that is looking at molecular-guided therapy for rare pediatric tumors. And we started out primarily in neuroblastoma, and it's still in feasibility studies. And we don't know. It's FDA-labeled drugs. We don't know if the doses were given are the optimal doses, but I think at least it's a start. And anecdotally, even though it's feasibility for neuroblastoma specifically, we have seen some longer progression-free survival, some quality of life, but I think the field has a long way to go before we hit the holy grail. And in the adult world, to hear some people speak all of those N-of-1 studies, they've had amazing results, but you I just haven't seen them in the larger scale studies. And those types of studies, at least now, are impossible to do in kids. Well, certainly as we do more and more targeted therapy and we carve out the number of patients who have that target 
the num- the ability to do large scale studies is going to diminish to the point where you're doing studies of n of one. You try it on someone and it works or doesn't work, and may or may not apply to the next person that comes along. Well, and that's where people like us need to make sure that the regulatory bodies keep up, because there. I agree with you, and I think. Hopefully, there is going to come a point where it is an N1 or N5 study in children, and we actually help them, but there needs to be regulatory flexibility so that those studies can be done. So speaking of regulatory flexibility, with all your work on these different FDA committees, um, what is your sense about what some of the big challenges or hurdles are? Actually, can you talk about the new pediatric group there that um, Dr. Riemann's involved in? Yeah, and so sure. Forth? And the, actually, the, gosh, I keep saying new, and they're not so new anymore. But I would say even compared to 10 years ago, the level of pediatric expertise has grown exponentially. And I think the fact that Dr. Riemann is there after serving as chair of the Children's Oncology Group is a testament to the fact that the agency wants to get it right. With PREA as law, pretty much every study that goes through the Office of New Drugs at least gets a review, a pediatric review. There's a whole committee set up. Every study gets a clinical pharmacology review. FDA has an ethicist, Skip Nelson, who is part of staff. So there's a whole committee called the PERC that reviews studies purely my opinion that one of the greatest hindrances for the FDA is economic. So they are they fall under a lot of criticism, but I think for the most part, the individuals there really do care about drug development and really do care about advancing things in children in a safe way. But they are so overrun with everything they have to do that it's a problem. That's interesting you say that because I'm on a committee, and I before being on the committee, I had never appreciated the fact that at least the reviewers in in the area that I'm serving in that, that review the product applications, they all have their own research programs as well. They're you know trying to run research labs and get things done in advanced science. I didn't hadn't realized this previously, but at the FDA, there is a lot of basic and translational science happening, and then they're asked to also do all these regulatory reviews. So so you're right, they're pulled in, in a lot of different and directions. A lot of the people, at least that I've worked with, still maintain some, the MDs still maintain some clinical practice, mm. which I think is good for them and good for the field because it keeps them relevant. Uh, and that's interesting on your committee because the members of the things I've done don't have research labs but are so overrun. And now with, I think the drug shortages that we're seeing are a function of the economy and they have the authority, but they haven't had the manpower to enforce regulations and companies. A lot of these manufacturing companies have had windfalls and now we find out that the facilities aren't safe. And so people turn to the FDA as as if they're responsible for the drug shortages. And I think, again, they're to be commended in their work of trying to notify people like us of the drug shortages, but it's a much bigger problem than just the FDA. And it's actually, you and I see it quite a bit in pediatric cancer, but I can tell you, again, through the work I'm doing with the AAP, it's a problem nationwide for a lot of children. So TPN is a problem. So for infants and premature babies, antibiotics have been a problem. Vaccines at some point have been a problem. At our hospital at one point with methotrexate, we were almost at the point of rationing who could get a spinal tap for the leukemia and who couldn't. 
and there was quite a bit of pushback from providers to FDA, and I think with a very short staff, they've done an incredible job of trying to come up with alternate solutions of manufacturers and for notifying end users. Yeah, that has been a big issue over the last couple of years is these various drug shortages, and probably very few people understand what's at the root cause of that. And how much do you think providers and lay people can influence the decisions that are made at the FDA? I think quite a bit by influence the decisions made by their elected officials. There are regulations and legislation, but really the legislation comes from Congress, right? So the FDA somewhat serves at their pleasure. And so I think those of us out there on the front lines can have quite a bit of impact, but it's more through legislation and funding then I think it is an initiatives that are put in place like BPCA and PREA through Congress then through directly through the FDA. I feel like our conversation has been heavily burdensome with regulation <laughs> and acronyms and things. Why don't we wrap up on some positive notes? What what gets you to work every day in the morning? What gets you excited? Why do you have hope or do you have hope for the future of kids with cancer and drug development and and what's the basis of that hope? So I do have hope. I think, wow, it's a hard time to be in medicine because of payers and regulatory documentation. (laughs) When I dreamed of being a doctor, I didn't dream of being a biller and a lawyer and a scribe. But some days it feels like that. But I have quite a bit of hope. And what gets me to work every day and what makes me happy when I put my head down on the pillow is still the chance to make a difference. So when you come to the early phase service with pediatric cancer, none of the therapies I have to offer are curative. But we had one patient who had neuroblastoma that grew through everything, and we got her six more months, so she was able to go fishing with her dad. I've had other patients who have been able to graduate high school, get a driver's license, and really have quality with little or no pain kind of life and a chance to be valued and to value what they have. And so the most powerful thing that's been said to me is, Dr. Neville, you made a difference for us. That's an awesome place to to wrap it up. I want to thank you very much for being here, uh, for visiting our program, for sharing all of your wisdom with us and with the, the listening audience. And and being willing to sit through this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been great. And if any listeners uh, have any questions about drug development, email us at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. I can send them on to Dr. Neville if if appropriate, and hopefully she'll respond. (laughs) 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 And remember, you can sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes by registering uh, using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website, although it looks like it's been not working recently, but hopefully it will be fixed soon. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donald Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Jenny Song, director of communications. And also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Thanks to Vic- Victor Aguilar and Jeff Thurston, our sound engineers today. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.